All right, so as you're making your way back in here, we're going to be in Mark chapter 7, verses 1 to 23 today. I'm going to go ahead and open us up in a word of prayer, and then we'll go ahead and get started. So let me just open us in prayer right now. So dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you for the privilege we have today to come to your word. I thank you for your word that speaks truth. I thank you for the love that you have for each of us. I thank you for, as we sang today, that you are with us all the time, that your promises never fail. I thank you that you rule over all, and I just ask that you'd be with me right now as I deliver this text. I ask that I would stay true to your word, and that you would just guard my words, that you would be glorified and honored, and we just thank you for this privilege we have today to open your word and be taught from it today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm going to be bluntly honest with you all. I do not want to be here today. (laughs) And how much less than to preach. To be even more honest, the past three months of my life have been extremely difficult, filled with a lot of trials, a lot of pain. And to be even more honest, I've not wanted to be here on a Sunday morning the past three months. If I'm here, I want to get here as late as I decently can and leave as early as I decently can, talking to as few people as possible and keeping it as superficial as possible. Uh, To be honest, I don't feel like God is in control. I do not feel like God works all things for the good of those who love him. I do not feel that God is winning. I feel like Satan is winning. I feel pretty discouraged. I feel very beat up. I don't feel very joyful. I don't feel like I have a lot of peace. But the truth is, as a Christian, I don't live by what I feel. I live by what we know And I didn't know the songs that Stephen was going to pick for us singing today, but I found that second one was just so perfect and so true as he introduced it with saying, we sing to minister to one another because that song is all about what we know. We're holding on to the promises of God. It doesn't matter what we feel. It doesn't matter if I feel like the enemy's winning. I know the enemy is defeated. It doesn't matter if I don't feel like God is in control. God is in control. I know that. It doesn't matter if I don't feel like God is on his throne. I know God is on his throne. It doesn't matter if I don't feel very peaceful. I know from God's word that Jesus has given me his peace. It doesn't matter if I feel discouraged. I feel worthless and beat up. I know that I have worth and value because of what scripture tells me. And so my prayer as I start out this sermon today is that I don't know how you feel today. I don't know what battles you've walked in with today, what difficulties and trials you're walking through in life, but don't live by what you feel. Live by what you know. Living by feelings is a very discouraging, difficult place to be. We don't live by our feelings. We regulate our feelings by truth. So be encouraged today. Even if you don't feel all that great, you don't feel like God is on his throne, know that God is. Know that God loves you. You have worth. You have value. So that being said, allow me to open up by reading our text. We are going to be in Mark chapter 7 today. We're reading the first 23 verses. Allow me to read our text here. If we all have your copy of God's Word and turn to there and stand, we'll go ahead and read this passage together. So coming from Mark chapter 7, Scripture says, The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. 
So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corban, that is devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. If anyone has ears, let them hear. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. You guys are welcome to take a seat. You know, this passage is a very personal passage to me in my own life because I would consider myself a former very legalistic person. And back in 2016, God really began to break me of that legalism in the past few years, kind of ironic, at the same time, about 2016, the Lord put some people in my life that were on the flip side of that. And so I've seen legalism from both sides. I've seen legalism from being the Pharisee who's proclaiming it to other people, declaring that this is how you have to live, even if it's an add-on to Scripture. And I've also been on the flip side of being the Jesus-like figure who's lovingly calling that legalism out and experiences the wrath of the Pharisees. And so this text is very personal to me, and I can say very honestly and this has been a hard text to study because there's so much personal application. There are so many things in my life that I see the Lord is still working with me. And so to be honest, I'm still in the front row. I'm just preaching to myself today. And if anything I say blesses, encourages, challenges, or convicts you, God be praised. But this is stuff I need to hear today. We're going to say a lot of hard things. A lot of things are going to be said today. But there are things that need to be said because Jesus dealt with them. And so before we delve into talking about some of these things the Pharisees had issue with, the Lord just really laid on my heart that I first need to take the time to define the gospel. If we are going to call ourselves here Highland Gospel, we need to have a very clear understanding of what the true message of the gospel is. Not a gospel that has something added on or something taken away, just the pure, simple truth of the gospel that is presented in God's word. How can you tell a counterfeit by knowing the real deal inside and out? The old saying that they train bank tellers with the real deal to recognize counterfeit cash is the same for us as believers. We have to be familiarly acquainted with that which is true. So allow me to take the time just to open up here with defining what the gospel is from Scripture. 
we have to start out and we have to understand from Genesis and then also brought out in Romans 3, there is no one who does good. Human beings are naturally sinful because of Adam and Eve's sin back in the garden. We have this sin nature that we have all inherited. That's the bad news. We are sinners. We are unable to save ourselves. Apart from God, we have nothing but wicked, evil, selfish, vile people focused on ourselves. That is our condition. There is nothing we can personally do to change it. Nothing. Because God is holy, our sin separates us from God. We're told in Scripture that the wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God, in a very real place called hell, where there will be eternal suffering and torment forever. We're also told that because God is rich in love and mercy, he sent his son down to this earth about 2,000 years ago. Jesus came to this earth. He lived the perfect life we could not, fulfilled God's commandments perfectly, and he died on the cross, spilling his blood as the perfect sacrifice for sins. We're told in Scripture that all who repent and call on his name for salvation and receive him as Savior and Lord will be saved. That's the gospel. It's very simple. It's very straightforward. It's nothing difficult. We've sinned. We've broken God's law. We're heading for hell. There's nothing we can do to change that. God sent Jesus. He paid our fine. And because Jesus has paid our fine, those who come to him and receive him as Lord and Savior are forgiven. That's the gospel. Simple, easy, doesn't matter if you're 90 or 9 or 3 or 4 years old. Anyone can understand this. That is the gospel. And simple and straightforward. With that being said, allow me to clearly state a few things that the gospel is not. Good works do not save one. We live in a culture that proclaims that if you do enough good, if your good outweighs your bad, you will be saved. Scripture is very clear that all our righteousness on our own is as filthy rags in God's sight. You cannot be saved by good works. Doesn't matter who preaches it, doesn't matter who believes it, doesn't matter if that's the popular majority. God's word is very clear, it says works do not save us. We cannot save ourselves. We need a savior. Good works are an evidence of salvation. They are not salvation itself. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 tells us that when it says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God Verse 9, not by works, very clear there, not by works so that no one can boast. Verse 10 clarifies us what works are. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Good works are an evidence of salvation, not salvation itself. I also want to be very clear on another thing. Scripture is very clear that we cannot lose our salvation or give it back to God. Once you are saved, you are always saved. This is something that has raged in a debate in the church for many, many generations. And recently the Lord led me to some scripture. We're told in scripture multiple times that God has adopted us to sonship. We are adopted into God's family. We're told that very clear in the gospels and the epistles that we have been adopted into God's family. So allow me to paint a biblical word picture that shows that once we are saved, we don't have to fear about losing our salvation. Let's say it's 10 years from now. Let's say I'm married. Let's say my wife and I decide we want to adopt a little boy from China. Let's say his name is Jonathan. We bring Jonathan back home. He's in our house for about six months. And Jonathan one day comes in my office. He knocks on the door, comes in. I can tell he's kind of nervous. He's kind of, you know, twiddling his hands, kind of looking down the floor. I say, Jonathan, what, what, what can I do for you? 
And Jonathan, he, he walks up and he says, um, Dad, if, if I uh, help do the dishes today, can I, can I still be part of the family? What am I going to say to little Jonathan? If he's going to ask, if he does the dishes, if he cleans his room, that he's still going to be a part of the family. I'm going to say, Jonathan, Jonathan, I love you, son. Look, I give you things to do, not because it keeps you as part of the family, but because you are part of the family. You don't have to worry about losing my love, Jonathan. I'm not going to stop loving you just because you have a bad day or if you rebel against me. You are my son. Nothing would compel me to tell Jonathan, hey, Jonathan, you haven't been obeying the past few months. We're dropping you back off at China. No adopted parent is going to say that to their child. And that is the same heart of God. God does not give us good works and say, perform, and you're still my child. Scripture is very clear. God is not a performance-driven God. He loves us because of who he is. At the same time, if Jonathan comes in and says, hey, Dad, I don't want to be your son anymore, I'm not going to say, okay, Jonathan, sure, we'll take you back to China and drop you off next week. No. He's my son no matter what. And the same is true for us as believers. Once God has adopted us into his family, there's no going back. God is never going to give up on us. And we have a faulty understanding of love as human beings. We say we understand unconditional love. We, we, we really don't. Unconditional love is I love you no matter what. Unconditional love is it doesn't matter if you put me on a cross and are cheering for my death, I still love you to my death. That is exactly the love that Jesus showed us. So scripture is very clear. We don't have to fear losing God's love. We do not obey Christ and do good works because we are afraid of losing our salvation. We're trying to please God and make sure he's happy. We do it because we are secure in him. We love him. And our love is what drives our obedience. We're told in 1 John that perfect love casts out fear. Romans 8, Romans talks about the spirit we have received does not make us slaves so we live in fear again, in fear of bondage, in fear of losing out. We're told very clearly in Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Once we are in Jesus, we have the blessed assurance of knowing that God loves us and is never going to turn his back on us. On the flip side, we have to be very clear, salvation is not a license to sin. If Jonathan disobeys me, I'm going to discipline him, not because he's going to lose I'm going to lose my love for him, but because I love him. And so salvation is not a license to sin. We have been given a new heart. We are saints, not sinners. Jude chapter 1 verse 4 tells us that turning grace into a license to sin is a perversion of the gospel. We have to have a proper balance of truth. No, we cannot lose our salvation, but no, it's not a license to go do whatever I want. That's not freedom anyways, that's bondage. It's a bondage to the sinful nature again. We are saved because of God's work, and we serve him because we love him. That's something the Lord has really impressed in my heart, that we need to have that clear understanding of the gospel. It's not by works. Works don't keep us saved. It's our love for God that drives those works. Once again, before I move into our text, I want to clarify once more the gospel. We are sinners. Nothing we can do to save ourselves. God sent Jesus. He lived that perfect life, died on the cross to take the punishment for our sins. Those who receive him as Lord and Savior will be saved. That's the gospel. Simple. Add, take away. It's not the true gospel. It's a false gospel. My prayer is for us at Highland Gospel that we be very clear to stand on the true gospel of God's word and his word alone. With that being said, I know it's a long intro, but it's very important that we know the truth before we can dive into passages like this 
and see what's wrong, what's true based on God's word. So jumping into our text now of Mark chapter 7, one of the first things I noticed from verse 1 here, as the Pharisees and teachers of the law, I noticed they'd come from Jerusalem. I thought that was kind of interesting. We know Jesus is in the region of the Gennesaret, up by the Sea of Galilee. And so I jumped on my maps to see how far away that was. And so from Jerusalem about to the region where Jesus is teaching, it's about 100 miles. Now, no, this is not, but this is not nowadays where if you jump on Apple Maps and type it in, it's a two-hour drive. This is back in the days when you're walking or riding an animal. This is a long distance. And yet here are the Pharisees. 100 miles away from Jerusalem, the epicenter of their spiritual worship of God. And here they are just kind of lurking around Jesus. And it's very clear from Scripture, they're not here to hear Jesus teach truth. They're here to tear Jesus down because they do not like what he's teaching because it is challenging some of their false beliefs. And I thought it was kind of interesting, just as a side note, you know, hate will really take you a long way to destroy someone else and ultimately yourself. It really will. Hate and anger and jealousy destroy us, ultimately. Now, I know we like to vilify the Pharisees, and rightly so, because they are part of the villains of Scripture. But let's just for a moment put ourselves in the Pharisees' shoes, okay? So we're told back in the Old Testament, if we go through Genesis to Deuteronomy, Israel was promised as long as they obeyed God, they were going to have his blessing. They would be the head, not the tail of all the nations, Where is Israel right now? They are under Roman occupation. Otherwise, they have lost the favor of God because of their sin. Now, the Pharisees are the spiritual leaders of the nation. So what do you want to do as the spiritual leader of a nation that's lost favor with God? Obviously, you want to win God's favor back. And so no doubt, I'm sure the Pharisees start with very good heart intentions. We want to get our nation back to God. But as they started trying that, they went with their own efforts Instead of trusting God and relying on his power, and as they tried to gain back this favor and started adding all these rules and additional things on top of God's word, pride crept in to their good intentions. And we see that here in the text from verses 2 through 5 as we talk about ceremonial washing. So the ceremonial washing, we can go back to the Old Testament for the background of this. Exodus 19 in the books of Leviticus and Numbers tell us this was a picture, these ceremonial washings, of washing sin away. It was a foreshadowing of Jesus washing away our sins once for all by his blood shed on the cross. The priest always washed before their ministry, and we're told that when someone was made unclean, they would ceremonially wash themselves, and they'd be unclean until evening, and so that water would purify them to be ceremonially clean again. Now, apparently, the Pharisees had went and added to this, and they had developed some very elaborate additions to this ceremonial washing. Apparently, people could cleanse their hands to remove ritual impurity contracted in the public market, being out there in the world. And they would pour water over the hands and immerse them as far as the wrists. And also, we're mentioned here about the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. They'd also developed very elaborate rules for purifying those vessels. Kind of a little side note application here, talking about coming in from the marketplace and washing their hands. I had to kind of ask myself, thinking about the world out there, do I have a heart kind of like the Pharisees? Am I hanging back kind of from the tax collectors and sinners? You know, are we unwilling to witness to and associate with the world out there because we think it makes us more holy to kind of hunker down in here? 
That's something else Jesus very harshly called the Pharisees out on. They were so concerned with remaining holy, they totally forgot their mission of reaching out to a world around them that needed the very God they claimed to serve. Jesus is very clear in Scripture. We're told earlier in Mark, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. We need to be engaging with a lost world that needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's great to come here and assemble on a Sunday. We should. It's encouraging. We're here to encourage one another, as Stephen said. But ultimately, we need to be heading back out and reaching out to a world that desperately needs our Savior. So the Pharisees are not happy about the disciples' actions. They complain to Jesus, and Jesus gives them a very stinging rebuke. Starting in verse 6, he references back to the prophet Isaiah and said, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. The word hypocrite it's, it was a reference to an actor on a stage who hides behind a mask. In other words, someone who's pretending to be something they are not. And the reason Jesus called the Pharisees out so harshly on their actions is because their actions weren't motivated by love for God, but rather pride. And let me just say to you today that legalism and exalting tradition, it's all about pride. It's all about us, all about our preferences, our opinions, our takes. And the reason Jesus is so hard on this legalism and exalting tradition above God because it inflates our pride. What hinders people from coming to Jesus? What hinders us from coming and surrender to the Lord? It's pride. Pride hinders us and it keeps many from being saved because we don't want to admit we have a Savior. We're, we think we're good people. We don't want to acknowledge that we're all vile sinners, as Scripture says. And so pride is inflated when I add all these lists of rules and regulations that I have to keep on top of Scripture, all of a sudden that's become about my checklist rather than my relationship with Jesus. I'll take a couple examples here. There is nothing wrong if your preference is when it comes to Sunday morning worship, you prefer pews, hymns. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that in Scripture. Now, if we exalt that and start saying that has to be what church looks like, we've got a problem. On the flip side, if your tradition is you prefer chairs and contemporary worship music, once again, nothing wrong with that. You start saying that's what church needs to look like, we're exalting our tradition, our opinions, our preferences above Scripture. Scripture is very clear. We're going to get into this here shortly. We've got to look at the heart. It's not the setting, it's the heart. Jesus is not interested in lip service. He is after our hearts. Also, a quick note on legalism and false doctrine. I was talking with Pastor Nate yesterday. I said one of the most dangerous things I think we've done to this Bible is we've introduced these things called chapters and verses. Not against chapters and verses. Let me just show the mindset this happens. We open our Bibles nowadays, and we don't see this very often. This is one book. This is one whole from start to finish. No contradictions. It's one book. It's not 66 little books divided into smaller chapters and verses. It's one united whole that tells the story of redemption and God's love for mankind from start to finish. It is one whole. Why we have so much false doctrine and false beliefs in today's world is we think, hey, if I find a verse that validates my opinion, in other words, I come to Scripture, and I'm not coming to Scripture to be taught. I come to Scripture because I have an opinion that I want to go out and tell everyone's wrong in. I'll take a perfect example of this. Let's say, this is how easy it is to take Scripture out of context, brothers and sisters. 
Let's say I have an opinion that I think you can't use doctors at all. That, that doesn't honor the Lord. It's, it's, it's wrong. Let's say I come to Scripture and I want to prove that. So I open my Bible. Hey, look, verse, Psalm chapter 60, verse 11. It says right here, human help is worthless. All right, it's very obvious that Scripture right there is talking about we can't use doctors, right? It is so easy to go to Scripture. And if I want to prove a point, it's easy. I can, I can sound convincing. I just open this book. I rip a verse out of context. I say it confidently. I pull a few more verses out of context to subplant what I believe. And all of a sudden, it's not become about God's Word teaching me. It's about me teaching my opinions through God's Word. One thing that we have emphasized here is context, context, context. What does the verse say after? What does it say before? What is the context of this passage? What is the audience we're speaking to? What is the cultural context? We have to take all these things into consideration when we're reading verses. We're reading God's Word. And we also have to realize that if we're saying something that is contradicting another Scripture, Scripture does not contradict itself. It is one united whole from start to finish. Nothing wrong with using a verse to back up a biblical truth But my prayer is that we'll be very careful that we're approaching God's word, that we are approaching this book to be taught, not to try to teach my opinions and my preferences through God's word. So I said in starting here that Jesus isn't interested in lip service. He's after our hearts. He says, they worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he gives an example of this. He references the law of Moses, the fifth commandment, and says you're supposed to honor your father or mother. And anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. Apparently, the Pharisees introduced a tradition here. What's this whole thing with Corbin, you might say, in verse 11? There was apparently this loophole that the Pharisees had made in the law. So back in Leviticus and Numbers, God had given a command that anything that devoted to him was holy, was set apart for his use. So this whole deal about saying here that if anyone says what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corbin that is devoted to God, then you, the Pharisees, no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Apparently the Pharisees were allowing children to use this Corbin to say, oh, I've devoted this to God to excuse themselves from caring for their aging parents. That's the context of what we're talking about here. This Corbin was a little loophole people were using in the law of Moses to neglect the responsibility of caring for their aging parents, a tradition that was setting aside the very commands of God. And Jesus took a simple example there and called them out on it. He continues, he calls the crowd to him and says, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. We jump down to verse 18 and 19. Jesus says, in talking to the disciples, Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them, for it doesn't go into their heart but into their stomach and then out of the body. Jesus is not interested, once again, I say in lip service, he's after our hearts. Now we have to define the word heart biblically because there's lots of definitions for the word heart. And I want to be very clear that when Jesus is talking about the heart here, he's not talking about our feelings. He's not talking about our emotions. I go back to the beginning of my sermon saying, I don't want to be here. 
Emotions do not dictate truth. Truth regulates our emotions. I validate or invalidate my emotions based on truth of Scripture. So when Jesus is talking about the heart here, we're not talking about how you feel. We're not talking about your emotions. When Jesus is talking about the heart here, looking in the original definition, in the original language, we're talking about the center and the seat of the spiritual life, the soul or the mind, as it is the fountain and seat of the thoughts, passions, desires, appetites, affections, and purposes, and endeavors. We're talking about the center and source of our beliefs and faith. We're talking about that central agency and faculty within people whereby we imagine, intend, purpose, think, and understand. We're talking about the qualities of a person's character. We're talking about that when we say the word heart. Because we're told in Scripture that many people, speaking in Matthew 7, that many people will say in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And Jesus will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. Jesus sees our hearts. He is not fooled by actions that are merely lip service, things that we do out of our own pride and arrogance rather than living to serve and honor him. And Jesus' issue with the Pharisees, and this is the reason the Pharisees hated Jesus. Jesus called out their hypocrisy. The Pharisees' focus was on the outward. That was their thinking. That made them acceptable to God. And Jesus said, no, it's the inward. It's the inward heart change that matters. You know, something that I had to think about with the Pharisees as we look at this text is Jesus loved these Pharisees. As hard as that is maybe to see sometimes with how they go back and forth, Jesus genuinely loved the Pharisees. He called them out their sin with the purpose of pointing them back to truth. And the Pharisees eventually killed Jesus for the speaking of truth, but Jesus still persisted. And think about this. Nicodemus came to visit Jesus at night as a Pharisee. He was saved. Joseph of Arimathea, a Pharisee, was the one who buried Jesus. He was saved. And a notorious persecutor of the church named Saul, turned his name to Paul later, wrote most of our New Testament, was saved. I have to ask myself, you know, who are the Pharisees in my life? Who are the Pharisees in your life? Don't give up on them. Don't give up on them, no matter how many rules and regulations they might proclaim. Keep loving them. Keep loving them. Keep sharing truth. Don't give up on them. You don't know who might be the Nicodemus, the Pauls, and the Joseph of Arimathea. So Jesus goes into the house. The disciples come to him, ask him about explanation of this parable. And Jesus says, are you so dull? The disciples had totally missed it. We talked about in last week's sermon how the Pharisees had missed this Jesus' miracle of the 5,000. And here again, they miss it. How in the world do they miss Jesus bluntly calling out against tradition and aiming at the heart? Matthew gives us some insight in this. We're told a few things in Matthew chapter 15 that Mark does not tell us. In Mark 15, in Matthew, excuse me, if Matthew 15, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, uh, don't you know the Pharisees were offended when you told them this? In other words, I don't think the disciples were listening. I think they're sitting here going, Jesus, these are religious leaders of the day. You're kind of getting them riled up. You need, you need to back down here. 
They were more concerned about man than God here. And Jesus is very clear. He says, we're to focus. He directs them to focus back to God. He says, every plant that my heavenly father didn't plant will be uprooted. Leave them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind guide the blind, both will fall into a pit. Jesus tells the disciples, don't worry about the Pharisees thing. Worry about what God has called you to stand firm on truth. And you almost hear a note of sorrow in Jesus' voice as he says this in Matthew 15. I mean, just imagine this picture for a moment, okay? Jesus says they are blind guides. All right, so it's, it's this image of a blind person groping around, unable to see. And, on, and, not, and that's not all. The picture doesn't end there. There's someone else behind them. They're trying to lead and guide. And as they're groping along, where, where are they groping towards? Jesus says a pit. If the Lord doesn't take away our spiritual blindness, what is this pit we're talking about? It's the pit of hell. It's the pit of destruction. Eternal separation from God. And I don't know about you, but sometimes when, you are, when you're dealing with Pharisees, they get you riled up. You don't really like them. They're hard to deal with. And it's easy to just want to write them off. But Jesus says, no, look, look, they're, they're blind guys. They're groping around in the dark, heading to hell. That's the picture. And they're leading a bunch of people with them. We've had our eyes opened as believers. We've had our eyes open to the truth. We can see. We can see. When someone can't see, of course, they're going to rile against God's word. Of course, they're not going to stand on truth. They're blind. They're blind. Jesus says, love them, don't give up on them, understand they are blind, and they need me just like everyone else. And so my prayer is just to have a heart like that, because it's so easy me always leave the Pharisees alone, the people who are legalists, the people who proclaim rules rather than Jesus. It's so easy just to want to give up on them, and Jesus says, don't give up on them. Oh, but Nathaniel, you don't understand how I've been hurt by some people who've dictated legalism. I'm very familiar with that, okay? I understand what it is like to be vilely attacked. But guess what? Jesus says, love them. Think about this. When I had the opportunity to preach last, I was coming out of Colossians 3, and we're told in Colossians 3 that we are to forgive as the Lord forgave us. How did Jesus forgive us? He's on the cross. The Pharisees are down there saying, if you're the son of God, come out from the cross and we'll believe. He saved others, he can't save himself. And Jesus is hanging up there on the cross and he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Look, I don't know the people in your life who've hurt you. I don't know the struggles you've been through. I know mine. It's difficult enough. But we are called to love and extend the same forgiveness that God has extended to us. And I'm here to tell you today that bitterness, desires for revenge, anger, you're destroying yourself. You will destroy yourself and gain nothing in the process. Forgive as God forgave you. I don't have the power to do that. You don't have the power to do that. But as Christians, we've been given the power of the Holy Spirit. and We can forgive and love as God has loved us. Back into the text where Jesus says, Nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them, for it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out 
of the body. Jesus is very clear here where sin comes from. It comes from within, not the outside. It is from the heart. He continues in verse 20 through 23. He went on. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, the evil thoughts come. And he goes through this list. You know, <laughs> this was probably the hardest thing the Lord taught my heart this week. Because don't I love to blame my sin on circumstances or other people rather than own up and admit it's the Lord still sanctifying me and I'm not there yet? We cannot blame others, circumstances. You can't say, oh, Nathaniel, you understand my work situation. You understand my kids. <laughs> These people drive me to sin. You know, it's the culture we live in. No, Jesus is very clear. All these circumstances and people in our life, it just brings out what's in our heart. If I was to set a glass of water on this pulpit, and I was to pound on this pulpit, and that glass is eventually going to tip over. And when it tips over, orange juice isn't going to spill out. Milk's not going to spill out. Water is going to spill out. All these circumstances of life that rattle us and shake us just brings out what's in our heart. And that's been extremely convicting because, yes, I know, praise God, that I have a new heart as a Christian. I'm no longer defined by my sin, I'm a saint, not a sinner, but I'm still working on the sanctification. I'm still working on the Lord making me like himself. And there are still areas of my life that the Lord is still working through with me, sanctifying me, working me through these sins and getting me to a point where I will obey and honor him. And I mean, just listen to this list. The first seven are plural, indicating repeated acts, and the last six are singular, indicating attitudes. Where it says evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. It's quite a list. And if I'm honest with myself, there's quite a few in there I'm still working on. And we know I'm told in Scripture that murder, Jesus considers hatred of others the same as murder. It's extremely convicting. My standards, I'm doing pretty well. But if we're talking about God's standards, I have a lot of work to be sanctified. And two questions the Lord forced me to ask as I was looking over this list and dealing with the things in my heart, is I had to ask myself two questions. Number one, what area of my life am I unwilling to call sin? As we look over this list, it's very easy for us as human beings to make light of our sin, to glaze over in a culture that says it's not really that bad. Truth is relative. Scripture challenges me, call sin, sin. Omit those things that are in my heart that are sin. I need to be willing to call sin. And then secondly, I need to admit that I need God's help. I need to stop trying in my own self-sufficiency to try to defeat these sins and these battles I'm facing. I have to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. And the third one, this is the one that hurt. Accountability. Private is not biblical. I read a quote this week that says, sin craves privacy. If you're living a very private life, if you are living away from the loving accountability of a good Christian friend or friends, then please take these words seriously. Know that you cannot alone guard your heart. I don't know where we've gotten this concept in the church that we're very private people. Oh, their marriage is on the rocks? I, I didn't know that. They're having trouble with their kids? 
They're dealing with this sin. I, I didn't know that. They're, we've become very private, and sin thrives in privacy. We can look at Scripture. Look at David. Tried to cover up his sin with Uriah the Hittite. Led to adultery, murder, and the falling apart of David's entire family. And we see that sin get passed down. All his sons, they do the same thing. No one wants to admit and call sin and hold people accountable. Being private is not biblical. I'm not saying we have to share every struggle we have with every single person in this room, but we need to have accountability. We need to have people who are willing to lovingly call us out and say, look, you need, that's sin. We need to have people who lovingly hold us accountable. So I know you've been struggling with this. How, how are you doing this week? What's encouraged and challenged you from the Word? We need people who will walk alongside and do life with us. And that is hard and difficult. We kind of like to ignore James chapter 5 where he says, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other. Eh, that's just, that was a suggestion. No, it's a command. We are to be held accountable with fellow believers. Call that sin in our life. Be willing to admit. And the Lord has challenged me this week. Nathaniel, there are some things in your life you are not willing to call sin. That you want to rationalize. That you want to excuse. That you want to blame on other people. Own up and say it is sin that you need my help and be willing to be held accountable by fellow believers. Be willing to be held accountable. It is from the heart that evil comes. You're wrestling with something, you can't blame it on someone else, you can't blame it on your parents, you can't blame it on your friends, you can't blame it on your work. It's the sin that we are still going to wrestle with till God calls us home and perfectly sanctifies us that we are going to face till the end of our lives. You know, this text is a really heavy text as we have to take those honest look of those things that we consider that we've lifted tradition higher, places that we've allowed sin to creep in. And there's a reason we open today's service with Galatians 5, 16 through 26. Because that passage to me, as I am forced to confront these things in my life that are less than desirable, I have hope because Scripture tells us very clearly in Galatians 5 that the answer to this isn't self-effort. It's not trying harder. It's not my self-dependence. It tells me right here in Galatians 5, So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. But if you are led by the Spirit... Gives us this long list on the works of the flesh are obvious. We go through 15 things. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It didn't say the fruit of Nathaniel. It said the fruit of the Spirit. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. I'm encouraged that as I look at my life, as I look at this list and see, yeah, I'm still working on not hating people. I can be greedy at times. I can be pretty malicious. I can deceive myself. I can be very envious. I, I can slander people. I can be very arrogant. I can walk in folly. I'm encouraged that I look at this passage of Scripture and it tells us in Galatians 5, it's not about my effort. We need Jesus. Unsaved, we need him. And saved we need him. We need Jesus. And we have been promised in Scripture in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, he will complete the good work he started in us. Praise God for that. We're told in Scripture that he honors a humble and contrite heart when we approach him and say, Lord, I know I've blown it. I know I've messed it up. He forgives us 
We're told in 1 John that he can, we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so even as we go through lists of sins like this and see that we have a lot of work, take heart. God isn't finished with you. He's not finished with me. And when we stumble and fall, his love is still there for us. He will never leave us nor forsake us, even as we continue to walk out this sanctification. So what's the application? I'd ask myself, am I a Pharisee? Am I being a Pharisee in certain areas of my life? Am I lifting my traditions, my preferences, and my opinions over God's word? That's you if that's me today. I say we need to repent. God's forgiveness is there. Know a Pharisee? Keep loving them and speaking truth. There are Nicodemuses. There are Pauls. There are Joseph of Arimathea who need to hear God's truth. Don't give up on them. Does that list hit you hard today? Sin that you realize you're dealing with in your life? Own up. Admit it. Look to the Lord for cleansing and his strength to resist temptation and be accountable to fellow believers. Find believers who can hold you accountable to walking the Christian life in God's strength. But the final conclusion in this whole text, I wrote down Mark 12.30 being my key verse, is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Does God occupy first place and the only place in your life for that matter? Is everything flowing from your love for him, not your pride, not trying to impress other people? Is it genuine love for God? Love God with all your heart. Live for his glory and his alone. My prayer is that he'd be the reason we get up each day. My past three months have been pretty brutal with some things I've been going through. If I'm just living for here and now, there's not much reason to get up. But if we're living for eternity, if we're living to see people changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, to see people come to the saving knowledge of him, we've got reason to live. We've got reason to get up and face today. Forget man, forget like the disciples were the Pharisees going, I don't know, Jesus, we shouldn't be saying that. You're kind of offending them here. Forget man. Live for God. Live for his honor, his glory, and his praise. Let man think what they want. Let's live to honor and glorify him. And once again, I reiterate, we cannot do this in our own strength, but he is sufficient. His power is there, and he will give us the strength to walk in his ways. And someday, praise God, he's going to take us home And these struggles and battles that we face today are going to be over. And we will be spending eternity with him. But until then, may we not lose heart. May we press on in his strength. May we find his strength to be sufficient. And may he alone be glorified, honored, and praised. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I admit that uh, I can see in this text ways that I am like the Pharisees. I can see in this text where I'm like the disciples and more concerned with man rather than God. I can see in this text, Lord, where I sometimes want to add things to your word. I see in this list a lot of sins that uh, I'm still wrestling with and seeking to fully conquer as well. Uh, But I thank you in all of this, Lord, that uh, we know your love is there, uh, that you care for us, that it is your strength we depend upon to fight the battles of life. And Lord, I don't know what everyone's going through here today, but I know you know. And I know no matter what they feel, I thank you that your love is there and that you will sustain them and give them grace. And so I ask that they live by what they know, not by what they feel. 
I pray for us as believers that we be bold, that we would proclaim the gospel, the pure truth of the gospel and your gospel alone. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today who does not know you as their personal Lord and Savior, I pray that today would be the day that they surrender to you, lay down their pride, and find forgiveness of their sins in you. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for your never-failing love. And we ask that you would be glorified as we continue to live life for your glory, your honor, your praise, and the advancement of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.